Hi, this is Dr. Habib again. Today I want to talk about how food can create inflammation. A little background, so inflammation, um, the terminology we use is itis. So common terminologies where we reflect inflammation of the joint, we call it arthritis. When we talk about inflammation in the colon, we call it colitis. And so inflammation is at the root of a lot of the problems that we experience in this modern lifestyle. And so what I'd like to be able to do is differentiate big inflammation from lesser inflammation and then really focus on how food can be inflammatory. So examples of big inflammation would be, say, an abscess. And we have many markers for that, and uh, namely ESR, sed rate, C-reactive protein. Then there is a smaller scale inflammation, like in the heart. So we look for highly sensitive C-reactive protein, which indicates if there is inflammation within the coronary arteries, which lead to increased risk of heart attacks. Now, when we talk about inflammation from food, there is no obvious marker. However, there are tests out there that can allude to if your immune system is responding in an adverse manner to food that you've ingested. So um, I often get asked, well, how can food hurt you because it's good for you? And the answer is, it is. But in this modern lifestyle, when we are consuming food, by the time it's broken down into fragments and particles and particles of protein, and it enters the bloodstream, the immune system doesn't see food, it just sees fragments of protein. And like, the, uh, like its purpose, which is to identify friendly versus adversarial components. If the food appears to be foreign, alien to the immune system, it's going to attack it. So what do I mean by that? Okay, so a little background. So we look at food and we think it looks like the real food, okay? But on a molecular level, if something is genetically modified, just that phrase, modified, tells you that even though they, two apples may look the same and one is modified, the other one is not, inherently you know that on a molecular level they can't be the same. Okay, that's still in debate right now, is genetically modified items creating the cause or creating the environment where food is inflammatory. Okay. So you've eaten the food and now you are going to digest it. You're going to break it down with acid and enzymes in your stomach, assuming you're producing enough acid and you have adequate amounts of enzymes. Okay, step one. Step two, these broken particles then have to travel down their small and large intestines where they're being further processed by bacteria. Question is, do you have good bacterial flora, healthy bacterial flora? Third step is that the lining of your intestine will determine what goes through and what is expelled. We call those tight junctions. And overlying the tight junctions are mucus lining that are called secretory cells, which keeps things moving, but is also a very active component of healthy digestion. So the mucus lining, 
followed by tight junctions. So let me give you the scenario where problems could occur. The first is, have you modified the food? Well, that could be a problem. And I think that we're getting close to the time where 10, 20, 30 years have gone by where the experiment is now going to reveal whether there is an impact. So I believe very shortly we will get some information to say, yes, genetically modified food created X, or no, it did not. Secondly, that we know that the acid in the stomach is somewhat compromised. So an ideal pH in the stomach is between 1 and 2, which is pretty acidic. It stops invading organisms entering the ecosystem, what we call the gastrointestinal tract. It helps break down food. It helps absorb minerals. It can also help release nitric oxide, which is very powerful at increasing blood flow through vasodilation, making the arteries wider. So there's a whole host of benefits for why the stomach in its optimal state would have not only the appropriate amount of acid, but also digestive enzymes to break down the fats, proteins, carbohydrates. So the question is, imagine how many people that you know of are on medication for acid reflux, namely omeprazole, in America we call it Prilosec, or Protonix, or Prevacid. Anything that blocks the acid, short-term may have benefit, but the question is, long-term, you're not going to have the acid. As a result, now the data is coming strong after 20, 30, 40 years, where without the acid, we're finding that we are at a compromised state of absorbing minerals and could be contributing to osteoporosis. We also know that without the acid, you cannot produce enough nitric oxide. Nitric oxide increases blood flow. So now we suspect that these medications can be contributing to coronary artery disease in combination with many other risk factors. What I want people to understand is that just because you don't have acid reflux doesn't make it, make it certain that you have enough acid in your stomach or enough enzyme. That's step one. Step two, should we say probiotics? Look, when you look at a healthy gut, one of the ways to figure that out is, what is the transit time? How long does it take for the food you've ingested to go to the bottom end? It's between 12 and 24 hours. A poor man's way to figure that out would be to say, eat something that's very hard to digest, like sweet corn. The yellow would be visible or very brightly colored items like beets, beetroot. And if you can see when they appear after ingesting, you'll have to figure out what the transit time is. Now, so if you have an unhealthy gut with poor bacteria, flora, and many other complicated components, that would give you a clue to say that maybe my gut, what's inside my gut may not be ideal. Again, that could be a problem with breaking down the food. So now, once that food is broken down further, it has to go through that lining, that secretory lining, and then into what we call the tight junction. It's tight because it should only allow small molecules that are beneficial to enter the bloodstream. However, certainly in America, we have a diagnosis called leaky gut syndrome. 
Leaky gut just means there is no longer a tight junction. It's wide open, leaky. A more formal terminology would be increased permeability. So things which should not be getting into the bloodstream are now entering when really they should be excreted as toxins. So in summary, what I'm going to say is that, okay, if the food was originally the way it's meant to be, and you had a perfect digestive system, and the nutrients entered the bloodstream, you'd have no problem with your immune system. However, what's happening now is that the food is no longer how it used to be 30, 40 years ago. As I said, it's, the jury's still out, but it's getting closer to a firm conclusion. But for sure, we know that significant number of the population are on acid-lowering medication, and a lot of other people are deficient in the acid. In other words, their pH may be three or four. That's not adequate for good, healthy gut flora and good, good uh, balance of keeping down the bad pathogens, including fungus. And that people's lining is not as robust as it ought to be. And that's affected by lack of sleep, stress, and you have examples of that when we give somebody steroids. We say, well, listen, watch out for your stomach because steroids will weaken the lining of the entire gastrointestinal tract from the stomach down. And then now, as we said in America, we have a diagnosis called leaky gut syndrome, which means that fragments of molecules or fragments of protein can now enter the bloodstream that shouldn't have entered in the first place. And what you have now is a perfect storm where food may become inflammatory. So this is the hypothesis that when you consume the food, particularly say gluten or dairy or eggs, by the time you've assimilated through the acid in the stomach, the enzymes, the, the good bacterial flora, the lining, secretory lining, and the lack of tight junctions, if you now present to your bloodstream anything other than what it perceives as perfect molecule, perfect fragment of a protein, it's going to send antibodies. Now, antibodies by themselves are not necessarily a bad thing. An example would be when you get a vaccination. You have just enough to create a response where your body sends antibodies, but it's there to protect you. However, if in addition to large amounts of antibodies coming out when certain foods are introduced into the body, and on top of that, you activate the immune system, namely complement, that's a whole new can of worms. Because complement does one thing and one thing well, is to attack and destroy. So by the time people have consumed certain items, and the big ones, as I mentioned, there are, there, there, there's descriptions of the dirty, dirty dozen and the healthy 15. So you can Google these things. But never mind, the three most common ones, the gluten, the dairy, the egg, if they are not assimilated into the perfect fragments, they enter the bloodstream day in, day out, over weeks, months, and years. At some point, the number of antibodies start to go up. You can measure them. If complement is activated, you can be very sure that there's a high risk, uh, what we call specificity, that there is an immunological reaction going on. And that will be in the bloodstream. So now what you have is either a problem 
in the local area like your stomach or elsewhere in the bloodstream, wherever the blood goes. In other words, you can start from the top and go down. And what I tell people is this, when you have a condition or a symptom that can't be explained with an x-ray, an MRI, a simple blood test, even the C-reactive protein, the sedimentation rate, the highly sensitive C-reactive protein, you might want to think about alternatives, uh, alternative ways of evaluating immunoglobulins and complements. And so when you have this reaction in your bloodstream, a cascade is going on where immune complexes are forming, the immune, immune pathways are being activated in a way to attack. And whether you have migraines, whether you have joint problems, whether you have eczema, whether you have asthma. So in other words, a whole host of conditions that if it cannot be explained by simple testing, you might want to consider food as being inflammatory. And so to fine tune what I'm saying here is that when it comes to inflammation, even asthma is inflammatory. Underneath eczema, if they did a biopsy, they would find that there's inflammatory cells there. In fact, we have conditions now which are kind of frightening where we have what we call interstitial cystitis. Cystitis stands for inflammation in the bladder. And when you do a biopsy, you find allergic cells, like an immune cell. And that's what's frightening because on a lower level, you can have simple things like eczema, a little joint aches and pains, but now you can get into asthma, you can even get into autoimmune problems because we already know that that exists. So when you have celiac disease, which is well documented for almost a century, should we say, where gluten creates a destructive force on the villi in the intestines and destroying, almost half destroying it. And um, so now I think in the modern times when food has become complicated, when now things are being modified and there are chemicals being utilized which then infiltrate into the, literally, metaphorically, the DNA of the food, it's no longer the same food. And, um, and so in real terms, how can I explain this? Well, I take a good history. So what I mean by that is I say to people, well, okay, let's, uh, let's, let me ask you a few questions. How do you feel in the morning? And oftentimes the usual answer is, I feel fine. Well, well let me say it a different way. Have you blamed the mattress for your aches and pains? And it's like a significant number of people say, yeah, you know what? And there's lots of TV ads about changing your mattress and you'll have the best sleep ever. But maybe you should stop and just ask yourself, well, if you're feeling a little stiff, that's a sign of inflammation. And another sign of inflammation might be, well, I had a really good workout, so I'm sore. That's a sign of inflammation. In other words, after working out, it's okay to have some degree of oxidation inflammation. But an excessive amount is sign of inflammation. And what that means is that there are people walking around in the gym today. I'm almost 50 years old. There are people in the 20s and 30s walking around with tapes and straps across all sorts. They have cup marks, which are called suction, because those are just signs that they're suffering from myofascial. Myofascial is another common inflammatory state, which people just think of it as, you know, it's just the way it is. But in fact, it's inflammatory. And so when I myself had tennis elbow on this side, tennis elbow on this side, Achilles are tight, 
these are all signs of inflammation. And we blame the exercise. Well, it was because I was doing butterflies that my tennis elbow came about from the gripping. That's true, except there was inflammation underlying and the activity brought it out. Same with Achilles. And so all these young people who are walking around either stiff or a little achy or more sore, these are all minor signs of inflammation, some of whom will develop more serious cases. And so what I'd like people to understand is to listen to the body and the first signs of inflammation are stiffness. The second sign might be pain. The third sign would be swelling. And the fourth signs are injury, like damage. You've damaged your rotator cuff. You've torn or partially torn it, a, 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 a ligament. And I will just sort of um, throw the seed that to say that since the 1980s, when I was a young doctor, or early 1990s, back pain has steadily gone up and up and up. And then we had a situation where it was a fad, fashionable, to do laminectomy or back surgery. After a decade of doing this, say until the 2000s, they put together the people with the back surgery next to people who tried other conservative maneuvers. And you know what they found? They found that they were both in the same place. Whatever benefit came from the surgery didn't last more than a few years. Ten years later, whether you had the surgery or didn't, you're almost in the same place. The moral of the story is this. If you don't ask what created the problem that warranted the surgery, then you're not going to get the solution to your problem. So continuing that back pain, because it's such a common dilemma, that in many cases, it's the discs which are bulging. Well, why are the discs bulging? Well, we know that there's a matrix of collagen and fibrin. It's very, very, very tough matrix with fluid inside. At some point, the fluid is not being held in place. I don't have all the answers. All I'm saying is that the question, why is there leakage of fluid? Why are the discs becoming weaker? Why is there inflammation? Again, not the type of inflammation that shows up on a big blood test, not the kind of inflammation that's going to show up on an MRI necessarily until you have the bulging disc, until you have maybe the sciatica. Now, let me give you an example of that. So before you have the bulging disc, a lot of people have pain without the discs. And so now we know what that is. Basically, when you have a weak disc, the fluid that's supposed to be in the disc, when it leaves the disc, it irritates the nerves, the sciatic nerves. That's what gives people the sciatic nerve pain that shoots down the leg long before the bulging disc. So you can have people without bulging discs that have sciatica. Surgery would not be a good uh, uh, way of solving that problem. And even if they have bulging discs, let's say without loss of power, loss of sensation, that means that the bulging disc is not damaging the nerve to that extent. There, it's arguable if doing the surgery will solve the problem because you have to ask, what's causing the discs to bulge? That is, that was exemplified by the fact that the study showed that whether you did the surgery or didn't do the surgery, after a period of time, they were in the same place. And so I'd like people to think again that one of the most common reasons why people think the bed mattress needs to change is because they wake up stiff. But it's not the bed mattress. It's more than likely you have stiffness in the spine because there's inflammation. When your hands feel stiff, 
it's because there's inflammation. It's stiffness before there is pain and before there is swelling. There's different grades and um, duration before certain things present. And these come long before blood tests, particularly the blood tests looking for big types of inflammation. The ones that we're talking about, about food, you can find them in children because I test. You can find them in young adults because I test. You can find them in older, middle-aged people. But the point is, it's not because I'm testing. I'm only testing because they are complaining, right? So I would say that, you know, going back to food, if people ate well, the bowels work well, their body and the joints and the ligaments don't complain, they're sleeping well, waking up, you have nothing to worry about. I am describing a situation where you have complaints like aches and pains and stiffness and swelling, or worse still, partial rupture, injury, tear, and your doctor's doing the uh, x-ray, CAT scan, MRI, physical therapy, that same routine, but you're not getting the solution because if you don't deal with the underlying problem, you're going to have what we call chronic, what we used to say tendinitis, now we call it tendinosis. And just to give you a little idea about why the terminology is important, chronic tendinitis is almost like, well, you got it, got to deal with it. And the terminology of chronic became tendinosis. And one of the therapies that they found was useful was that if you break that cycle of that chronic tendinosis and you damage it, and then you do rehab, you have a much better chance of fixing a chronic situation that just wasn't getting fixed. Now take that concept and, 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 and let me add a, a way of helping yourself. Number one, think of food that may be creating these problems. And it takes about three or four weeks before you can see an appreciable difference. I do encourage people to test because the human nature is such that if you avoid a certain food for a week, you think it's a month. Two weeks, you think it's an eternity. So what is the reality and what you believe are, are kind of a little different. And that's what testing would tell you what are the foods, how long to avoid it, but usually after three or four weeks, you can feel the difference. And so uh, I would say that the, the avenue with where people can try to help themselves is to identify, number one, what's creating the inflammation. The second one is, what can I do to bring the inflammation down? The most important thing is adequate sleep. When you have adequate sleep, your hormones are balanced. When you have adequate sleep, your antioxidant level is higher. Your lining of your uh, intestinal lining is protected. Conversely, without the sleep, you'll damage your intestinal lining, which is weakening that gut protection. Your hormones like testosterone will go down. Your, your other additional uh, uh, hormones will be off balance. The second thing you can do is give your th uh, body the things that will support the immune system, antioxidants, the things which are bright in color, like bell peppers and, and, uh, and vegetables and fruits, the blueberry, the raspberry, the strawberry. And so if you f provide the nutrients that increase the antioxidant level and you sleep adequately, you will be able to reduce the inflammation. However, the principle always has to be what are you putting into your body that's pro-inflammatory? The th three or four most common ones are wheat, dairy, eggs, sugar, and then you can go into soy or chicken um, and so forth. And then as far as 
Are you putting enough nutrients into your body? You can measure them. Instead of guessing, well, someone like myself, I don't guess. So I'm giving you generalization, but in my office, I would test your vitamin C level. I would test your total antioxidant function. I would test individual antioxidants. So these are ways to balance it out. And finally, what I would say is that one of the best healing uh, properties is when you intermittently fast. And what I mean by that is, first, avoid the foods that are inflammatory. Consume the foods that are good. But then, when you give your intestines a break and you fast, what you start to do is engage the immune system in a way it wants to help repair itself. It starts to activate growth hormone from your body. So my, my point is that documentation of the benefits of intermittent fasting have reduced inflammation, lowered blood sugar, lowered blood pressure, help people lose weight, even reverse fatty liver disease. So my point is that those are the three-pronged approach. Find the foods that could be inflammatory, try to avoid them. It's very hard without testing, but if you can stick it out for three or four weeks, you'll see a difference. Number two, put in the good food that will help reduce your inflammation by supporting your immune system. Number three, give your intestines a break. When you're hungry, your body will produce peptides from the gastrointestinal lining. They will indicate to the brain the pituitary to release growth hormone. Every organ in your body has growth hormone receptors, including your gut, including your ligaments, and your discs, and your spine. And therefore, if you activate the growth hormone, then that will support every single structure in the body. So for people who may ask, well, how long do I fast? Well, the first one is be hungry, because it's the hunger that releases the peptide called ghrelin. But we say a minimum 12 hours, which is not hard to do. It's like skipping a meal. And so for myself, I may be able to uh, have a fasting period of almost 20 hours. And everybody's different, so I'll just tell you my routine. My routine is to say that, that once I've eaten my dinner and I finish with a heavy dose of nuts and good fats, that for morning I'm not hungry, no breakfast. I enjoy my cup of coffee, but no milk, no sugar. Throughout the day, I'll drink beverages, take my vitamins. I may even have a few other black uh, cups of coffee. Lunchtime comes around, I'm a little bit hungry, but I'm, all gonna, I'm, gonna, uh, uh, I'm going to resist my, the, my temptation. And after about an hour or so, the hunger pain is gone. I'm staying hydrated throughout the day. When I finish my work around 3.30, 4 o'clock, if I'm unlucky, 5 o'clock, I'm ready to go to the gym. When I'm in my gym, I'm activating growth hormone because I'm using my muscles. I'm increasing the nitric oxide by increasing flow of blood that has a shearing force and nitric oxide is released. At which point I will go home and I'll eat my dinner at say 6, 6.30. I'd like to do it earlier, but once I've had my dinner, and my dinner is three plates, one plate full of beans and lentils and vegetables, another plate would be my lean, clean proteins, it could be chicken, it could be fish, and I would mix that with uh, certain, uh, certain uh, uh, good quality fats, whether it's avocado, whether it's uh, coconut, and I usually finish with a diversity of nuts on different days, on different occasions, different nuts. And so uh, even though I'm eating so many items, but I've chosen my food groups well. I don't go for refined things like bread. I don't go for refined things like white rice. In fact, my idea of rice is basically either wild rice, maybe bran rice, but I'll go with quinoa. I'll go with um, root vegetables like uh, sweet potato. And, um, and frankly, my co complex carbs comes from lentils and beans and so forth. And so 
any and all green vegetables are part of the repertoire. I don't count calories. I don't see how many vegetables I've had. I don't count how many beans. So the main thing is to be satisfied with the amount of clean protein, good quality fats, complex carbohydrates, and make sure you have a heavy dose of good fats because that will keep people going, whether it's 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours, or 18 hours. So hopefully that helps to try to uh, just put the whole picture together, but just keep in mind that food is not what it used to be. For people who are doing well, I have no problems, but if you have symptoms that can't be explained by going to your regular doctor, regular blood tests, regular imaging, and it's recurring, or worse still, you have an injury, then it's worthwhile, worthwhile considering that could food be inflammatory.